Hey, good morning. Welcome to Journey Church. You're looking great. Hope you've had a great weekend. Hey, I've tucked my shirt in. I'm wearing dress pants. It's kind of an act of reverse rebellion today, so let you know I'm being me. <laughs> we'll try to have a short service today. I've got to get home and check the curling results from... Uh, All right, if you like curling, I'm not making fun of you. I'm just... Uh, so, uh, we're going to be looking at uh, the Apostle Peter and his life and emotional intelligence today. And uh, we're going to start by reading some scripture from Matthew chapter 26. Now, I always feel kind of, uh, kind of bad when I read this passage. It's about the Apostle Peter's meltdown. And, uh, you know, none of us would really want to take one of the worst moments of our life, then somebody put it on paper, and then for 2,000 years, people gather on weekends to read about it. And uh, that's kind of what we're doing here. It reminds me a little bit like, you remember the old wide world of sports? The thrill of victory, the agony of defeat, and that guy on the ski jump that at the end just wipes out, and the skis go flying. And you imagine for years, let's say his name's Jim, He's sitting in a living room with his friends. He leaves to the kitchen to get a Coke. They say, hey, Jim, your jump's on. Trap, trapes. Well, that's kind of how it is with Peter. But the Lord doesn't put this here to make fun of Peter. Because Peter became one of the great leaders in the church. It's here to be instructive to us about how to live in truthfulness in our own lives. So uh, let's dip in and see what the Lord has for us tonight or today. Now, Peter was sitting out in the courtyard... And a servant girl came to him. You also were with Jesus of Galilee, she said. Now remember, Peter's out in the courtyard outside of where, or Peter's outside of the courtyard outside of where Jesus is being tried. But he denied it before them all. I don't know what you're talking about, he said. Then he went out to the gateway where another girl saw him and said to the people there, This fellow was with Jesus of Nazareth. He denied it again with an oath. I don't know the man. After a little while, those standing there went up to Peter and said, Surely you're one of them, for your accent gives you away. Then he began to call down curses on himself, and he swore to them, I don't know the man. Immediately a rooster crowed. Then Peter remembered the word Jesus had spoken. Before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. And he went outside and he wept bitterly. Let's pray. Lord, uh, bring life to this into our own lives. Instruct us in ways that you want to liberate us and encourage us. In Jesus' name, amen. One of my favorite uh, movies is The Natural. It's a baseball movie, Robert Redford, uh, early part of the 1900s. He's got a chance to play in the big leagues. He's on a train headed to the, to the majors. He meets a woman on the train, they agree to meet in a hotel when he gets to town, she shows up dressed in black and shoots him. And it uh, doesn't kill him, but he disappears. Years later, he shows back up, now he's been brought up from the minors, he's got a chance for the big leagues again, comes kind of out of nowhere, just hitting the cover off the ball. But he's on a team where there's a big fight between the manager, who's a part owner, and an and a unscrupulous owner. He falls for another woman who he's interested in, but she's also surreptitiously working for, uh, 
for the unscrupulous owner. At one point, she poisons him to try to keep him out of a big game. When he begins to realize what happens, he thinks about how he was betrayed earlier in his life. And he says to her, I should have seen it coming. I should have seen it coming. You maybe watched with me the uh, confession and presentation of Tiger Woods this week. And if you're thinking what I thought, and by the way, when we talk about famous people, remember, they're just people. They're people who, if they were sitting here, would have loved ones who are just as devastated as we would be. So we're not taking pot shots at people. But he, so he's talking about what's going on and how he had been living this secret life. And if you were with me, I was sitting there thinking, a blind man could have seen it. That in a day when telephones take pictures and people Twitter and Facebook and email and there's information everywhere on the web, there was no way to live that kind of secret life when you were that famous without eventually there being a meltdown. A blind man could have seen it. Or when Michael Vick, with the largest NFL contract of any player, is involved in dog fighting and killing dogs who aren't performing, putting everything he has at risk, a blind man could have seen it. And we could say that about Peter. This meltdown that we see in Peter's life It shouldn't have been a surprise just hours before as Jesus was sitting down and eating with his disciples. He tries to get them ready for what's up ahead, for the trauma of the the trial and the crucifixion. And he's telling them, and by the way, this is going to happen. Under the pressure of it all, you're all going to abandon me. And Peter, out of the group, says, as everybody else leaves you, not me. You can count on me. I'm not going anywhere. I'm steady as a rock. What was there going on that blinds us, that puts a veil over our face, so that things that really are just as obvious as the fact that the chair you're sitting on is black, and yet we we don't see it? One of the, we're, we're part of the West, and one of the things the West does is it elevates the IQ. The IQ matters. Intelligence is important. But in fact, research is showing us that your IQ has about a 20% impact on how you succeed in life. That in fact, the IQ is not a very good determinator on how you react to all the issues that life sometimes unexpectedly throws at us. In one piece of research, they followed 81 valedictorians in Illinois and tracked them through college and then after college. And they found that those valedictorians did very well in college. But when they got past college, in their late 20s, they were compared to peers the same age in chosen professions and found that only about 25% were actually excelling at the top level. In another piece of research in Harvard, 95 Harvard graduates with the highest IQs were tracked and over a longitudinal study found that their happiness, life satisfaction, success at work, relationship skills seem relatively unimpacted by their IQ. A global CEO recruitment firm said, 
People are hired for the largest firms at the top levels because of their intelligence and their business expertise. They are fired because they lack emotional intelligence. So our intelligence, our IQ is one of the tools God gives us. But if we don't attend to some of the other tools and skills that the Lord gives us, we often can find ourselves sabotaged in our best efforts. So some of the values of of paying attention to our emotional intelligence is that we can avoid our best efforts being sabotaged. We can realize what could hinder our relationships. We can understand how we can indirectly impact our children. Do you know that indirect teaching of children is one of the primary ways they learn? Here's an example of that. One of the highest impacts on whether our children become readers is not if parents read to them, it's if the parents own a lot of books. That's something. If a child grows up in a home where the parents have a lot of books and are seen reading, that's a greater impact on the child than if the parent is reading to the child. Because they, they pick up that indirect value system that's consistently communicated in their life. And so there's a lot of reasons why we can look at emotional intelligence in our lives and the value that it will have. Because nobody here wants to be in one of the most significant arenas of your life and find something in our lives that sabotage us and take us off the playing field because we weren't alert to something that we possessed in our life. So let's have a look at what emotional intelligence is. Four qualities of emotional intelligence. Number one, emotional intelligence is self-awareness. It is recognizing and understanding our emotions in the moment and the tendencies we have across situations. Recognizing our emotions in the moment and the tendencies we have across situations. The Lord gave you your emotions to serve you, not to be served by them. And as a service to you, to be alert to what emotions you are having becomes useful. Now here's Peter. The Lord's trying to tell him what's going on, the intensity of what's ahead. And Peter seems to be functioning with almost no self-awareness. Now, now Peter had a great fear. You follow his life, his fear was he was afraid of people. And the Lord knows that he's got to lift this fear up. He's got to make this fear visible to Peter so it doesn't constantly sabotage him in the most critical moments of his life. And so he's trying to tell Peter, now Peter, under pressure, this is what's going to happen. And Peter, almost oblivious, he argues with the Messiah. You can't be right. This isn't what is going to happen. This isn't who I am. And he disagrees with Christ over that declaration. Self-awareness. And so now he's outside of Pilate's hall and he's put under pressure. And under this pressure, he begins to behave in inexplicable ways. Ways that are not like him, ways that he, do, he does not aspire to, and he can't comprehend where in the world is this behavior coming. 
from. And when Jesus steps out of that hall and glances at Peter, the Bible says that Peter sees that glance and he went out and he wept bitterly. But a blind man could have seen it. Now this isn't just about famous people or about Peter. There have been times in my life where there has been behavior that seemed inexplicable to me. One of the things you're looking for is ways you behave that are way out of proportion to the event. So there's an event, this would be an appropriate response, but your response is way out here. I, 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 after a while, I got so frustrated with these apparently learned responses that I sat down with a fellow. I said, I, I want to unpack this with you. And as we began to unpack this, I found that I possessed three great fears that really governed so much of how I made choices in life. The greatest fear of my life was the fear of being embarrassed or humiliated. I would do almost anything to avoid embarrassment. And I ended up producing peculiar behavior patterns and lifestyles. For example, I showed up inordinately early for meetings. Because I didn't want to come in a back door in a meeting like this and find that the only open chair was here. And that I would have to walk all the way up through a bunch of people for fear that they might pummel me, trip me, throw rocks at me. What? What kind of irrational fear is that? I would hide things from my wife rather than take them back to the store if they didn't work. Not like, go back to Target. Here's a toaster. Yes, Mr. Long, uh, are you sure you didn't break this toaster? We've had you under surveillance. You know. I'd go to a shopping center. I'd park way out past all the other cars. Not because I had a Lamborghini I didn't want to get dinged, but because I figured... Somehow, irrationally, that if I drove all the way up to the front, all those places would be taken anyway, then I'll look stupid, so I might as well park way out here. You know, my kids used to kid about packing a lunch so they could stop and eat on their way to the store. And in, and in all kinds of other little ways, just this piled up effect of behavior traits. I began to see that I was afraid of being embarrassed, afraid of humiliation that came out of a, a certain, certain characteristics in, in my, my past and family of origin. I also began to understand that I was afraid of the supernatural. Now, being afraid of the supernatural world is problematic enough if you're a believer. But it's particularly difficult to manage if you're in my profession. Where you're supposed to be talking to people about God's intervention, supernatural intervention in our lives. But I was afraid of the supernatural for two reasons. One, in my childhood almost all of those who exhibited significant supernatural insight were, were women. It wasn't a problem that they were women. It was a problem that it, it ended up creating in me a picture that the supernatural world was feminine. There was a second problem. 
I was afraid, remember my first fear, that if I really followed God, He would have me do something that made me look stupid. Like none of you have ever worried about that? All right, the guy next to me is raising his hand. What do I do? Do we all got to raise our hands when we sing? I'm just going to look around. You know? <laughs> if God made me look foolish, it fed the first fear. And, and that, led, that, that came out of a third fear, which I was fundamentally afraid of God. I thought God's general disposition was one of irritability. <laughs> and and, that, and there was, it was his general position to be disgusted and I had to prove otherwise that if I actually met him he would just look at me and drop his head and shake it now who of you would want to be in the presence of somebody regularly that had that attitude towards you so I go to church and they talk about we need to be connecting with Christ and we need to be reading our Bible and we need to be praying. So I had this schizophrenic world of knowing that these are all the good behaviors of a believer but actually these behaviors were designed to bring me into the presence of someone that I thought fundamentally didn't like me. So why would I spend all my time in his presence? These fears produced unexpected responses at unplanned for occasions. So when I read the life of Peter, I sometimes feel like I am reading a chapter of my life. And I lived without an awareness of where that stuff came from. Let's look at a little, a little clip from Dr. Peter Holmes as uh, he, he takes about 90 seconds to explain an element of this reality. The hardest lesson that Peter had to learn was that who he thought he was was actually not who he really was. It may have been who he wanted to be, but it certainly wasn't who he was. And when we read scripture and we begin to read the story, one of the challenges for us is to acknowledge that actually a lot of what stands in the Lord's way in our lives is actually below the waterline. We don't know it's there, but God does. And one of the challenges that the Lord faces in our lives is that he can only redeem what we're willing to own. And the Lord needed to take Peter on a journey so that he could begin to see how God saw him. Do you catch that? He can only redeem what we are willing to own. God doesn't surface problems in our life to say, aha! He surfaces them to bring redemption. And Peter was unwilling to own. He was unwilling to own that he carried this fear. And because he couldn't own it and wouldn't own it, Christ couldn't redeem it until he had this meltdown and now he couldn't evade 
a reality about himself. So self-awareness, understanding our emotions in the moment becomes a a key clue. There's really five core emotions that you and I have. Happiness, sadness, anger, fear, and shame. Happiness, sadness, anger, fear, and shame. And all five of those emotions can either be redemptive and righteous, or they can be unredemptive, unrighteous, and destructive. And being alert to them and where they show up becomes a tool in our life. If I become self-aware, it allows me to move to the second quality of emotional intelligence, and that is self-management. The Bible talks about it as the fruit of the Spirit and says the fruit of the Spirit includes self-control. Self-control is doing the appropriate thing at the appropriate time. Self-management means that I recognize and understand these emotions and I use that awareness to stay flexible and to direct my behavior in righteous ways. To direct my behavior in righteous ways. Now, where are we with Peter? Because he wouldn't enter into self-awareness. He was at the mercy of this stuff below the waterline of his life. And so under pressure, under duress, he ended up with responses he would have never chosen for himself. Keep in mind that this was a man who was willing to die for Christ. This was not a weak man. But in that moment, unprepared, he ended up denying Christ three times, cursing, just fell apart because he wouldn't live in the truth that was actually, actually there in his life. Now, here, here's something we tend to do. We tend to create an environment where our baggage is not threatened. So when I parked way out in the far edges of the parking lot, or when I refuse to show up at a meeting late, or when I don't take something back, I'm accommodating my baggage. But the word accommodating isn't harsh enough. I am giving my baggage authority over my life. Why would I want my emotional baggage to have authority over my life? And yet that's what's happening when I create an environment that accommodates that baggage because I can't 100% of the time control my environment. So when I'm thrust into an environment that I have not fully controlled and it cannot accommodate my baggage, my baggage causes me to react in ways I would have never planned on reacting. So part of the goal of self-awareness is to move me to self-control to self-management, to respond wisely to the circumstances and the challenges that I see myself in. Now, let me give you a, a little insight in one of the ways this is working around journey. Because just like individuals can have self-awareness and self-management, so organizations can function with self-awareness and self-management. 
And I want to show you one of the ways that we are managing ourselves for the sake and the purpose of health. So let me give you some statistics to begin with. When I was an overseer of two states of churches, about 30 churches, we had trouble always getting health insurance for our churches because 60% of all the pastors and wives in that fellowship were on long-term medication. This occupation that I'm in has a particularly high rate of health problems, stress and disabilities connected to it. Here's another statistic for you. Somewhere between eight to nine pastors out of ten leave this occupation before they ever reach the age of retirement. It is an inordinately high turnover rate for any profession. I'll give you a third one. On average, eight to nine pastors out of ten leave a church after a building project. Uh, check see if we're listening on this one (laughs) gives you an idea of the kind of energy and stress and resources required for that kind of enterprise I'll give you a fourth on a typical weekend now around journey here we'll often with nothing special going on other than just the normal weekend services the Lord showing up and we'll often have somewhere between the mid-1300s to the high-1400s on a weekend. There's only one person on the entire Journey staff who has ever worked in an organization, the outside edge of an organization of that size. I'll give you another one. Church plants, particularly, require in the beginning phases for leaders to live unbalanced lives. Church plants on the front end require leaders to live unbalanced lives. 70 to 80 work, 80 hour work weeks, etc. I'll give you a sixth. As an organization grows, every new level of an organization needs a new mix of skills. What goes on in an organization like in a church of 200 is quite dramatically different than what goes on at 400 or 600 or 1,000 or 1,200. Now in the business world, this is kind of how it works. Guys, I was chatting with a group of entrepreneurs. Here's what entrepreneurs tend to do. They start a business, grow it to here, sell it. Start another business, grow it to here, sell it. Start another business, grow to here and sell it. You know what they're doing? They're staying within their gift mix. Now, big organizations, this is what they do. They hire a CEO that takes them from here to here. They hire another CEO that takes them from here to here. They hire another one to take them from here to here. Now, that presents certain problems. Number one, Brian can't sell us. So, that's like, that's off the table. Number two... There's a statistical correlation between, in the church world between the longevity of a pastor and the success of a church enterprise. So we're not interested in finding a new leader at every new phase. But you know what that means? 
That means that as an organization grows in the church world, the lead pastor must reinvent himself and gain a new mix of skills repeatedly with the organization. And that is very rare. That is very rare. So, we're uh, the leadership around Journey here, we're borrowing from the medical industry, from the education industry, and from some large organizations like Intel. And uh, we have been proposing to Brian that he take a research and enrichment leave starting a few weeks after Easter and kind of running through the summer, be back the middle of August. And uh, he's going to use that time to retool himself for the next phase of the life of journey. Now, right away, we had a little meeting and say, you know, as soon as we tell people this, they're going to think there's something wrong. Like, is he not getting along with his wife? There's nothing wrong. This is a response of health. Because in this industry I am, I'm in, we are famous for telling you how to be healthy and then creating systems where we get unhealthy. That's part of our industry. We're not interested in that kind of church. We're interested in a church where we are committed to the health, your health and our health, if we're going to be good models. And so we've invited Brian to consider taking a, a, a leave prior to us getting in the new building. So take about four months or so. And uh, he's presented a research proposal to the leadership. He's going, to be, he's going to be visiting four church campuses throughout the United States where they are excelling at some of the very things that we need. Now, a lot of the time, he's not going to be gone. He's going to come in and sit and worship with you. He'll be maybe sitting him and Dana and their seven kids will be right next to you. <laughs> you might not hear much of the message that week, but that's okay. <laughs> And he'll, most of the time, he'll be among us. But we're inviting him to move out of the tyranny of the urgent into a time of reflection and evaluation and increasing his skill base for the next phase of the life of journey. Now, the, the leadership structures will be functioning within the staff, the management team, the church council, and uh, we'll all be invited to step our game up a little, a little bit. And, you know, while Brian's gone, we're going to have some fun. <laughs> like, uh, we'll be bringing in this summer, a, I'll let Brian tell you who it is, but we're going to be bringing in this summer one of the top NCAA Division I basketball coaches of our generation. He's had two teams to the Final Four and uh, has been the coach of some of the top NBA players that play today. He'll be with us. A great young pastor from Houston is going to be up here. And in the meantime, we're going to be investing in Brian's life so that he can bring the kind of leadership, carry the vision and the heart for journey that he's carried thus far. We're doing this not because something's wrong, but because we want to always be doing something right. This ties in with one other passion of Brian's life. If you were around him a lot, you'd find out he is not interested in a personality-driven church. Because of the American culture and our celebrity status, it's kind of easy for that to seep into the church culture. 
Brian doesn't care for that. He believes the church of Jesus Christ ought to be driven by the energy of Christ and that every person ought to know that they're an integral part of the kingdom enterprise of being redemptive in the Gallatin Valley. He's not in, in, in interested in creating some kind of organization that revolves around his personality and his energy. And he feels it will be a great time for us to find out that even when he's gone, that we have an unfairly good authority that Christ and the Holy Spirit is going to stay. And it'll be good for us to experience God doing things even when he's visiting a church in the other part of the country, honing his own skills to lead and serve us well. And we're doing that because we believe in being self-aware as an organization and responding with wise self-management, becoming proactive in doing the things that are good for us just as we would expect ourselves to do individually as we respond to the Lord. All right? Let's, let's drop over to number three. Self-awareness leads to self-management or self-control, which now prepares us for social awareness. Here's what social awareness is. It's picking up on the emotions of others and understanding what's really going on so I can respond wisely. Now here's Peter. Jesus is trying to prepare the disciples for this enormously traumatic event. Not only is he trying to prepare the disciples, he's trying to prepare himself. Because we began to see that Jesus is beginning to feel the pressure of the moment. And so he takes his disciples off to the Garden of Gethsemane. And then he takes three of them a little further and he turns around and he says to them, Peter being in this group, would you tarry here with me while I pray? The Bible says the intensity of that moment was so profound that as Jesus prayed, he sweat as it were drops of blood as he began to feel the shadow of the sin of humanity upon him. Peter's response to this awesome and intense moment was to take a nap. His ability to grasp the things at stake because he was disassociated with what often went on in the real world was to not be able to respond with social awareness to what was really going on. Now, when I talk about social awareness, being aware of what's going on around me and in other people's spirits, I'm not talking about some ethereal trait. You and I are spiritual beings. We have an innate skill to comprehend what's going on around us. It's no different than saying that my suit jacket is brown. We just are accustomed to turning it off and not trusting our, our, our emotions. How many of us have gone to somebody's house and when we left said, let's get out of here. I don't know what's going on, but something's happening. They either fought before you showed up or they're waiting for you to leave to have a fight, but something's going on. You intuitively knew that in your spirit. Now, Brian, Brian is... 
gregariously well-mannered. Like, I'm a German-Norwegian, and we interact on emails a lot on stuff and strategy. And Brian, like at the end of his emails, he says, uh, so grateful, uh, fondly. I don't know what to do with that. I, you know, it's just, I thought, oh, okay, you know. So he's very approachable to all the staff. But once in a while, if someone's paying attention, if we get together, we call it 10 at 10, if you're in, people in the office kind of meet in the room at 10 o'clock and have coffee or tea together and just kind of catch up with one another, if you're paying attention, there'll be a day every so often where you, just, you can feel that Brian's carrying something. That's not a day to come up with four new ideas or ask him to solve a problem. And when I walk, walk in and I feel that, I let him be. Now that skill that I use, it's not some terrific skill. It's just paying attention to what you feel when you're with another person. And not just automatically turning off that intuitive skill because you don't trust it. Peter was functioning with no social awareness. And because of that, he could not manage the relationships. Number four, relationship management. So how did Peter do in those hours? He argued with Christ, boasted about himself, denied the Lord, wept bitterly, all in all, not a great day. He got into fights virtually with people outside of Pilate's Hall. He got into arguments with Jesus. When the guards came at the Garden of Gethsemane to get Jesus, he cuts off a guy's ear like this one Galilean is going to stop the entire Roman army. He's he's out of balance. Why is that? Because he wouldn't live in what is true. True about him and true about the circumstances that he was in. So just to finish up, let's give, let's give four little hints. If, if even in the midst of this, there's a little something, something that surfaces and you think, you know, that brings up in my mind or my heart this thing. I'll give you four hints in developing emotional intelligence so we don't go down that road that Peter went down. Hint number one, if you're really wanting to know about emotional intelligence, ask somebody. I mean, it's actually that simple. I can virtually guarantee that if you're not sure where you lack emotional intelligence, the people who live closest to you are well aware of it. And if they actually knew it was safe, they could tell you more than you want to know about how your responses in certain situations are all, always out of balance with what the actual stimulant was. Just ask. Jesus told Peter. Later on in the New Testament, Paul told Peter. Other people can let you know if you really want to know. And somebody asked me after the first service of this, they said, but isn't that kind of scary? I said, my experience so far is that it's not. Because when you hear it, you'll realize you actually already knew it. 
you were just afraid of what it would mean. It's not likely you're going to hear something that's way out of the blue. Number two, review your failures and life systems. In what kind of settings, with what kind of people, in what kind of events do your reactions sometimes are sometimes out of balance with what's actually going on? What are the life systems or the points of failure in your life? Number three, there's an openness about this dialogue. So this is why I bring number three up. Don't live in secret. Don't live in secret. Lately, Ted Haggard has been in the news. HBO has been doing a, has done a bio of him and he's been interviewed by Larry King and others. Ted Haggard was the pastor of one of the larger churches in America down in Colorado. And uh, sexual indiscretions were revealed and he resigned and went into some therapy and uh, counseling. And uh, I was often in the same room with Ted Haggard. We were both on the board of directors of the National Association of Evangelicals. Because of that, we were often in meetings together around the United States. And the National Association of Evangelicals was looking for a new leader. I thought it needed new blood. And I was one of the people that recommended that Ted Haggard be a person considered for that role. However sinful his behavior was, and it was, as, it, as he unfolds his story, the fundamental problem, because there's nobody here that doesn't have a problem, the fundamental problem was he decided to live in secret. And when you and I live in secret, we give the ground to Satan. Now I don't mean that everybody has a right to know everything, like, everyone here doesn't have a right to know everything about me. But there is nothing about me that one or two people don't have a right to know. And when I got a job where I was going to be on the road all the time, often in places where no one knew me, I decided that the pillar of my life was going to be that I had no secrets and you go down this path and you decide I'm just not going to have secrets anymore you will find you'll begin to feel the kind of weight those secrets once had in you and the lightness of your spirit when you decide you're going to start divesting yourself of that number four Develop a strategy to be loyal and true to your true identity. What was Peter's true identity? Jesus told him. Now you're going to find this humorous because we've been talking about him. He's, he's all over the map. And yet Jesus says, you're a rock. And on this rock, I'm going to build the church. You're going to be the first great leader of this church. You're going to take this church through the first half of the book of Acts. Rock! Talk about a guy that's, that's all over the place is Peter, and yet Jesus says his true identity is a rock. And you begin to see that 
when I don't have emotional intelligence, I'm actually letting that stuff steal who Christ created me to be. And Christ wants you to be as excited about who he created you to be as he is. Because when he got done with you, he said, it is good. Now, sure how this worked out. Because of my fear of people, I developed an inordinate skill of pleasing people. I had, in, I had very good antennas about what people wanted because I knew that the way to protect myself was just to please them and do what they wanted. So I lived by everybody else's agenda. Everybody else had a wonderful plan for my life. And I functioned that way. And the more I got rid of my fears, the more I began to journey into who Christ actually created me to be and actually enjoy that. So let me compare me and one other guy on the staff for you. How many of you know Sam Summers? Yeah, Sam Summers. Come to us from Billings. Now, he'll probably be in the foyer after church. In two weeks, he knew the, f- the first name of 80% of you. It took him another two weeks to learn everybody else's name. I, however, still struggle with my own children's names. <laughs> Sam can talk to you about anything. Talking to Sam is like somebody just pouring a healing balm over your spirit. He's as interested in you as Christ is. He just talks to you. By the time you're done with your first conversation, he'll know your shoe size. Just, and it just flows out of him. If you come and talk to me, once, <laughs> once we get past the weather and whether you fish, I'm out of topics. I'll be looking at my belt buckle. I'll try to be thinking of something that I see you wearing that might engender some idea of where this conversation should go next. And I kept trying to be Sam. But my strength finder test is I am highly analytic and very strategic. And if you come to me with a mess in your life that seems untangleable, is that a word? (laughs) Just think of fishing line. I love that. You ever went to the movie Beautiful Mind where Russell Crowe stands back and he's looking at all these numbers and they're looking for patterns in those numbers and finally all of it just starts to whirl around until finally he can see a pattern? When I saw that, I recognized that because that's what happens in my life. I can step into a person's chaos and it all has order to me. And I've learned not to try to be Sam Summers and to relish that skill that he's given me. And some of us in this room have fears and emotional intelligence that's been damaged and it has stolen away part of who Christ made us to be. And you declare no, I want to return to the, G- the person Jesus made and God honors that declaration. Well, why don't you set your things aside and uh, let's bow our heads as we finish up this morning. Thanks for being so attentive today. And uh, Could I ask you, just as we bow our heads and we're not looking around, nobody's going to embarrass you today, but... Maybe there's something just in the midst of this discourse 
that you know if you're paying attention to your spirit, it just kind of leaped out. It was magnified. There was clarity to it. You know that the Holy Spirit was actually saying, now this, this piece here, this is for you. And Christ is here today and he can hear your declaration. And right where you're seated, you could pray. You could pray something like this, Lord, I am not willing to give the authority of my life over to my baggage anymore. I'm tired of carrying that weight. I'm tired tired of stuff sabotaging my best efforts. I'd like today to be the beginning of a new journey into health and liberty in my life. So Lord, I declare, I want to know what it is. And I want to know what's the next step I should take to go on this journey. Would you meet me in this place? And just as we're waiting, you can, you can pray, you can ask the Lord for that in your own words. And we're just going to wait for a moment while you do that. You know, our heads are bowed, nobody's looking around, and this isn't going to embarrass you, but just to declare to the Lord the hunger of your heart and that you mean what you're praying today. Just to say, you know, I'm praying that. Would you just slip your hand up and put it down and say, I'm asking the Lord for that. Yeah, all, all through here in the middle, over on the right, or over on the left here, a lot of us. Here in the middle again, up here in the front and the left, over here on the right in the middle, yeah. Lord, we're, we're all in the same boat here. We've all been damaged. We live in a fallen world. We're not talking about trying to make heaven on earth. But for many of us in this room, we intuitively know that Christ died to do more for us than we've let him. For these who slip their hands up, I pray that you'll rush new measures of grace that you'll honor their declaration. You'll show yourself strong on their behalf. And you'll bring people and circumstances into their life that will provide a new impetus, a new energy to walk at a new level of freedom. In Jesus' name, amen.